Welcome to the practice of being seen. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. I believe that when you truly see yourself, you create a ripple effect that allows you to be the change you wish to see in the world. And that invites everyone around you to do the same. In these curated discussions, I invite you to make space to see yourself. But here's a little warning. The practice of being seen might lead to deeper intimacy, less fear, and more creative, bold action. Are you ready to deepen your practice and be seen? Welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast, episode number 42. Today, I'm joined by Tiffany McLean, a therapist consultant whose mantra is, full fees are the new black. Through her business, HeyTiffany.com, she helps upwardly mobile clinicians in private practice overcome their own shame about marketing and making bank so that they can help the clients who they're truly passionate about serving. She's been featured in Psychology Today magazine, Psych Central, Huffington Post, KGO Radio, and SF Weekly. I think you're really going to enjoy today's show. So without further ado, here we go. Hello, Tiffany. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited for today's conversation. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be on. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. You know, I know that you do so much work with psychotherapists in private practice around the money mindset and kind of leaning into their own stuff. Absolutely. We have a lot of stuff around money for sure. I think all people do, but therapists, I think we are uniquely positioned to have stuff around money. So it's exciting to go in and everybody could use a little leaning into their money stuff. Why do you think that we're uniquely positioned for that? A couple of reasons. That's an interesting question. First of all, we entered this field because we wanted to help people. We became therapists because we wanted to help people. A lot of us had our own stuff growing up our own struggles, our own obstacles, our own difficult journeys that led us to this field in particular. So I think not only did we enter this field to help people, but also we come with our own all kinds of conflicts around what it means to ask for help, what it means to get help, what it means to not get help when we need it. And all of those things are so tied into money, relying on other people, advocating for ourselves. It all gets mixed up. And so money is a symbol of all of those internal conflicts. And so especially with therapists, even though we work on our internal conflicts and work with other people around that, we don't often incorporate money into those explorations. Uh, Because we're not taught how to have these conversations. I think one of the things that this brings up for me immediately in our conversation already, and I love that we're already here, is all of the uncomfortable conversations that we don't let ourselves like even have with ourselves. Yeah. Right. And we know as therapists that when we get into those places with our clients, that's where the magic happens. I'll just say that also makes me think we have supervisors and mentors and colleagues who help us do those explorations with ourselves around all kinds of topics, but not around money. No, we're not taught at all. I mean, well, there's a few things we don't have those conversations around. Money is a big one. Sex is another one. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> you know, so like I find that these are conversations that therapists don't have enough of. And I might even put in like race and privilege and like there's a whole bunch of other things that we could probably throw into that mix also. The conversations we're not having. 
It's interesting. I think actually there has been, especially over the past decade, the past five to eight years, a huge movement into talking about is issues of race and privilege in our field, but money and sex, not so much. And when those things are brought up, it's interesting, actually, my master's thesis was around all about erotic transference and counter-transference in the therapeutic setting. So clearly I go into the areas that we're uncomfortable talking about. I had no idea. I love that. <laughs> I think... When we talk about money or sex, when it comes to our clinical practice, it's often around, don't do it, it's bad, end of story, don't think about it, that's bad, end of story. And so if we even imagine thinking about these things, there's a lot of shame and fear that's tied into it. Yes, so much. I think we get blocked there because we're also human. Mm -hmm. And so many therapists, when that shame and that fear comes up, they don't know what to do with it. Absolutely. Actually, I'm curious, you started out by saying, you know, you see that it's hard for therapists in our field to talk about things like sex, things like money. I'm curious, given that you work with therapists, you have the show, you do a lot of work around this. What kinds of stories or narratives do you hear from people around money when it comes to private practice? Mm. <sighs> There's so many. There's so many different ones. But from, I'm not worth that to uh, I couldn't, to they can't afford me, uh, to put that I feel guilty because I won't be helping. I mean, like the stories, just they're exponential. And what the other side of them is these stories are coming up around conversations that usually start with how do we create more space so that you could take care of yourself? Yeah. Absolutely. That's usually the lead in. Yes. And then it goes to the money. <laughs> That's absolutely right. We're very good at talking about the self-care piece as long as it doesn't touch on to the money piece. Well, and we're good at talking about it as long as we're talking about somebody else's. Yeah, it's so true. That's absolutely right. All the things we're talking about, you hit on them. The <laughs> guilt, the shame, the fear, the anxiety about can they pay or not. All of those things are just, we hear about them so much so when much. we're talking to therapists about money, all of this stuff. Comes yeah. yeah, and you know, it's interesting because... I mean, I know our clients may struggle with money, but I don't think they have the same amount of shame around it necessarily as our profession does. I agree. And I'll also say this. It's hard to know, actually, because we're so afraid about money. We don't bring it into our clinical work. And so we don't actually know how our clients are thinking about or dealing with money in their own lives. And actually, when I work with therapists around this and they start looking at and really leaning into their money anxieties, money fears, projections, all of that, it actually starts coming up in the clinical space and they are shocked to hear how much it is actually playing a role in their clinical work and in their clients' lives, but they just didn't know because they were too afraid to go into it. Can you give us some examples? Yes, actually, I can give you an example from my own treatment with a therapist. We worked together for two years and I was in grad school when I started with him and I was so anxious around, oh, I don't have enough money to pay. This was before I was doing my own money work. This is a part of why I went into this. So I felt asking for a sliding scale felt really bad to me, but I also needed the help. So I went in kind of this groveling way, this position of need. And he took me on and he said, you know, I really just want to help. And the moment I met with him, I felt like, oh no, this doesn't feel like the best fit. But who am I to ask for more? As the client, uh, this is what I deserve and I should be lucky to have anyone. So I had all these feelings around it, but these were not things that were talked about because they were cloaked under, thank you so much, gratitude on my end. And on his end, oh, I'm happy to 
do a great thing for a grad student, right? So there were all these underlying things that didn't come up. So over the course of the therapy, I often found myself, as I do, in a position of entertaining and being a good client and really being thoughtful, but in a way that was pleasing to him. Because again, the unconscious narrative for me was, this is the best I can get. I shouldn't be asking for more. Okay, wait, I'm going to slow you down for a minute and just pause you here because what I just heard was I'm going to be presentable and pleasing to him. Yes. Because absolutely. he's giving me a deal. Absolutely. He's doing something nice for me. So I have to present myself in a way that is acceptable. Absolutely, Rebecca, that is absolutely right. And I think that so many of our clients on a sliding scale have similar feelings, but we don't go into them because we're also conflicted around. I just had this conversation with someone that I was working with. And one of the things that we were talking about as this person is thinking about reorganizing their business structure and considering which clients they might offer sliding scales to, we were talking into this and saying like, we have to give some consideration to A, how we do sliding scales yeah. and B, into why we're doing them and how yes. deep we go. I know that I've made my share of mistakes clinically and retrospectively, I've noticed that there are times where I've offered sliding scales where my work could have been a lot better had I held different boundaries and had deeper conversations around the whys behind that. So one of the things I discovered when I started working with therapists specifically around this, something I was surprised to discover and later found it in a book, was that therapists who take people at sliding scales often feel confident. They feel good about that work. It feels safer. And when they actually start charging clients fees that are in line with the reality of their financial situation, the therapist is intimidated, insecure, wondering if they're doing good enough work for this $200 client. So embedded in that is a very interesting narrative about what it means to work with people who are impoverished or can't afford us and feeling good around that. And then the fears about what it means to work with someone who can pay full fee. That makes me think, what are we playing out with those low fee clients in having that attitude or bringing those attitudes to them in oh our work? Goodness, there's so much richness in there. Yes. You know, and here's another thing that I hear a lot, you know, as therapists are considering sliding scales. I have heard some say, well, I do it on an income basis, right? So if their income is this, this is what their fee is, or they have to prove their income to me. And I know when I have done sliding scales in the past, I did it differently because for me, bringing an income also brings other power dynamics and shame conversations. So when I did it, what I did was I looked at what I was comfortable sliding to, and I would present that to my clients and say, this is my range between here and here. And pick a rate that feels sustainable for you and let me know what that rate is. And then we'll contract that mm-hmm. and we'll revisit it in X amount of time and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, when I bring that up to other clinicians, they say, well, they're always going to pick the low side. And that's not the case. Yeah, that's not the case. That's not true. There's something around, you know, I'm thinking about even the idea of, it's so complicated. I actually, I have people on a sliding scale who I've worked with for years and years, but I don't take any new people on at a sliding scale. And I do not plan to take people on at the sliding scale anymore moving forward because there's so much we play out around money, our own projections, our own fears around money. So even if we think about that idea of, you know, I look at their income, I have them bring in their income statements and we determine it based on that. In my mind, I'm thinking, well, what are the percentage that a therapist determines a client should set aside for therapy? Like it's so complicated that I don't even know how to begin thinking about a factual based, concrete based scale 
out of which to determine whether you're going to offer a sliding scale or how much or what to slide to. Yeah, it seems like it's taking the value of therapy and it's making the therapist determine it in a way yeah, rather yes. than giving the client that right to self-determination. And you know what? I'm so glad you brought that up because I think so many therapists, because we're worried about our work or are we good enough, you know, our, our self-worth issues get pulled into it, that we actually are afraid to hear or to know if our clients are willing to pay our full fee. So rather than getting to a place of saying, here's my full fee, based on the reality of my financial situation, it's up to you to choose to take it or not. We do all kinds of twisting in games to not find out the answer about whether someone finds our work valuable and is willing to pay. Well, and yeah, and so let's go there because this is really a conversation about what are you worth, yeah, right? Yeah. And it's about doing that deep inner work to believe what you're worth, but then also letting other people, like giving them the right to yeah. choose whether they believe that you're worth it also. Yeah. I want to switch this a little bit from yeah. what are you worth? Because there's so much tied into our personal beings. And what is the kind of separating out our professional selves, the service we're offering from who we are as human beings? Mm, so our because this not, is so much about worthiness. Yeah, absolutely. We're not, they're not paying for our worth as humans. They're paying for a value that we're offering them. They're coming in for help. They're coming in for a service. They're paying for us to help them with that service. Not for our humanity at a fundamental core level. And yet that humanity is also in the room. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And if we're not taking care of ourselves yeah. and making yes. space for ourselves and attending to our own needs and like the basics of our own lives, we're not able to show up in that service way. I agree. I actually think being able to lean into your money stuff, really take a hard look at your financial situation, be in financial integrity, helps you show up in the room professionally as a clinician so much more fully than if you're avoiding and afraid to actually lean into all of this stuff. It's kind of like being hydrated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like if I step into a session and I'm dehydrated and I haven't been taking care of myself, I'm not going to be as present with my clients as I will be if I've had a glass of water. Yeah. Yes. Right? It's that simple. <laughs> yeah. And a good night's sleep. It's like, it, these are the basics. That's right. It seems so simple. And yet, like you were talking about at the beginning, we struggle so much with this. So in one way, it's so simple. It seems so simple intellectually. And then on a visceral level, it's so complicated it and so, so rife. So you have this program that you've just launched. Yes. It's called Lean In Make Bank. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Tell us a little bit about it. What's going on in there? I am so excited about it. I did a beta program in June and I took seven people through the program then. I was so moved. So in June, I created the program hand in hand with the therapist. So I uh, had phone calls with them, tried to understand what exactly their needs were. Like a lot of us, started out by doing marketing consultation for therapists and I still really love that work. But I noticed that one thing that got in the way of even the marketing consultation piece, understanding who we wanted to serve and how we wanted to serve them, was this thing around fees. Therapists were so uncomfortable looking at money, talking about money, understanding the role that money played in therapy that I was like, I have to step out actually from the marketing aspect of this for a moment and actually really hone in on and understand and help therapists understand what in the world is going on with this money stuff. So I created that program in June. It was a huge success. Therapists went from even, you know, I had different results. Some people in the month 
right after the program, making 600 more per month, 800 more per month. Somebody within the 90 days after graduating started making 1,200 more per month. And this is with the practices that they already have, even before they go out and start marketing or understanding how to market their practice. So this is not changing like it's not adding new services. It's, it's not, not adding new services. Anything. Mm-hmm. It's working with the same people that you've been working with, doing yes. the same work that you've been doing. Yes, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting that I'll have my students come and talk about the program because they do a better job talking about it than I do. I'm going to do my best. I use the idea of raising your fees or making more money with a practice you already have, setting diff- more clear policies. I use that as a way to market the program. So people are like, oh, I want to make 600 more in my practice. But it's actually so much deeper, so much more looking at the mindset around it, looking at the way you're treating the people in your life, the way you're treating the projections you're having about what it means to be wealthy, what it means to be poor, looking at your family of origin stories and understanding how that's actually coming into your clinical work. So it's a fully integrated program that's really dealing with the nuances of money and how you may be playing out your money problems, conflicts, expletive here with the clients who are sitting across from you. And I want to actually put a stop to that. So we're not playing out our money stuff with the people we're there to serve. That. And so can you give us a little peek? Like what kind of stuff is coming up? What conversations are you hearing? Yeah. So the first module actually of the program is all about your community. So I don't even start with money stuff or our clients right away. I actually start with the therapist community itself. And you know, I love the name of your podcast, The Practice of Being Seen, because one of the things therapists really struggle with is, A, being seen at all. You know, we like to be in our offices, you know, one-on-one. So to put ourselves out there as- And not showing up, you know, like in some ways we're the blank slate, right? Absolutely. Yes. I have a psychoanalytic background. So for me, especially, I'm, you know, more flexible these days, but it really was like blank slate to the max when I'm sitting across from my client. Clearly that's changed. But I understand that fear of actually being out there and being seen. So if we combine therapists already being anxious about putting themselves out there and facing, you know, rejection or what are people going to think about me? And then we add money issues to that. It's just exponential fear and shame for therapists. So the first thing I want my therapist to start with is intentionally creating a community of therapists around you who support your growth and challenge you to actually go towards your goals as opposed to reinforcing the shaming narratives that we have as part of our professional culture. Oh, bam. I love that. So I remember years and many years ago when I was moving my practice from an insurance model into a private pay model. I remember the conversations that I was having with local colleagues versus the conversations that I was having with new mentors and other people that I was meeting. And the possibility that was either blocked in one community Mm -hmm. and the permission that was given in another. Yeah, that is right on. It is so interesting. You know, a lot of therapists, if they put themselves out there around money or say, you know, here's my financial goal, of course it's tied into your self-care goal. But if they put that out and they get a response from someone else that is shaming or envious or in some way attacking, that therapist automatically registers, oh, I was wrong or I shouldn't have said that, as opposed to maybe these are not the people I should be going to with these types of goals and dreams and and self-work. Yes. (laughs) It's interesting. It makes me think, you know, I wonder 
too, if there's a generational thing, a part of what I'm doing with- I don't think it's generational. It's everyone, right? It's, it's everyone. It's, yeah. And one thing that I started to find was the very people who were shaming me, once they saw it working for me, started doing it. Themselves. Yes. It's okay. So I'm glad you brought that up. Another piece of this program is it's easy for us to say, oh, that person is a terrible person for shaming me. I actually encourage my therapist to cultivate a kind curiosity around the people who are maybe giving you a painful response or an attacking response rather than saying, well, forget them. Actually understanding that they're coming from a place of fear themselves. Yeah. And if you go first, you're actually carving a place for other people to follow in your footsteps. Yeah. It's hard to be one of the first ones though. Yeah, it is hard. Rebecca, it is hard. And I say that's our responsibility. Like if we have the capacity to grow and have access to a program or resources that help us grow, it's our responsibility to be bold enough and brave enough to go first. And I say this as women, as women of color, you know, we have a lot of firsts and it behooves us to just step into it because we're actually making a difference. For many people, there's a ripple effect. Absolutely. Way bigger than us. Yeah. So let's keep diving here because I know one of the other things that you talk a lot about is upward mobility. Yeah. And I feel like this brave, bold conversation is leaning right into that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What do you mean by upward mobility? I work, so both in my private practice, the clients I see, but also all of my therapists, actually everything I do is thinking about what it means to be upwardly mobile in the world. And what that means is I'm talking to people who are maybe first generation college goers. Maybe they're the first in their families to actually have their own business where they're making or on the path to making six or more figures. These might be people who are straddling class worlds or ethnic worlds. So these are folks who are having to understand or learn things or move forward in ways that generations before them we're not able to do, or maybe did not have access to the same kind of privileges. And with that comes a lot of feelings of uh, imposter syndrome. Can I actually do this? If I do this, am I leaving behind the people I love? All of these things get stirred up when we're talking with or about people who are upwardly mobile. Oh my God, so much. I know I've experienced like all of that in my own uh, life. Uh, give me an example. How, how has this come up? <laughs> Oh man, shoot, <laughs> I shouldn't have said anything. I know, now we're out. Being seen, Rebecca. <laughs> oh God. Okay, well, he, so this is not totally about money, but it is about upward mobility. Oh, he's going to kill me for this. But <laughs> there have been times where, as I grow as a relationship therapist, for example, and I learn new skills, and my husband and I are working on integrating them. I get worried that I'm going to leave him behind. Yes. Okay. You know, That's perfect. Yes. We end up working through these things, but yeah. like, I have to say there have been many therapy sessions where I've been sitting on the other side of the couch as the client. And that has been the conversation. You are not alone in that. That is extremely common. And it's not, you know, when it's a romantic partner, it's especially scary. Like if I grow, what does that mean? Is my partner actually going to grow with me? And it also happens with our families of origin, our oh, friends yeah. we've had for a long time. You know, what does it mean if I actually stop engaging in these patterns that I used to with them? Or if I actually start turning my attentions to not being a poverty mindset, where we're always talking about the struggle, but actually moving into a mindset where I'm talking about the growth and the potential what does that mean for my relationships? It's really, it's big really hard. Stuff. It's really yeah, big stuff. Yeah. You know, and one thing that I also noticed is that like in this past year, my husband and I have both been doing a ton of growing. 
And he recently got promoted at work. He got a really big promotion around the same time that I was going through a lot of expansion. And so it was really an interesting place for the two of us to be because we were both so consumed internally with what was happening and both needing support. Mm -hmm. Our cups were so full Mm -hmm. that our ability to be there to support each other was compromised. You know, we ultimately both really figured that shit out. Yeah. (laughs) And we've both grown a ton. Yeah. Ton in parallel to each other. But we joke around a lot that we're not supposed to both grow at the same time. (laughs) You know what I think as you're talking about this, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's both crazy. And how did you do it? And the excitement of that challenge. I get so excited by the idea of challenges. I didn't used to. I used to be terrified and I would get paralyzed and fall down on the ground. But now I am so excited to hear how do people actually move through those things, those next stages of growth and development. It is fascinating and exciting. It is. And I think, you know, I think it takes a lot, right? Like, I think we all need people Mm -hmm. who we can turn to. Mm -hmm. And for me, I had to find those people external from my husband. They couldn't be him. I needed to know who those people were. And that was a really big deal for me. It also takes the movement, right? Like we have an option in those moments. We can either move and keep moving, taking the next step, or we can get stuck. Yeah. And like, even with my husband, with his job, which is, he's not an entrepreneur in the same way that I am. He works for a company, like a nine to five-ish type of job. But he had moments of doubt in there, like, oh, I shouldn't have taken this promotion, you know, like as he was growing into it. Yeah. You know, it makes me think it reinforces this this idea that we need people. And one of the struggles with around both money and upward mobility and us therapists as entrepreneurs, I have a friend here, Jessica Engel, who coined the term therapreneurs, which I love. So as therapreneurs, we actually do need a community to help us get to the next level. But when we go out to talk about these things or try to get to the next level and the community gives us back, or at least the people we're finding initially give us back grief or give us shade, throw us shade, it's really hard to know how to move forward. So one of the things I want to impress upon your audience and one of the things I'm hearing you say is that there are actually the people out there who will help you grow. You have to look for them. You may have to be persistent initially, but there are absolutely people out there who are making these changes. And this is what I love about the online world. As much as I have trouble and struggle with kind of all of the connectivity, yeah. one of the things I love about the online world is how much it helps us uncover who is like us, who thinks like us, who can be supportive, even if we don't otherwise know them, that there is a lot of connection that's available out there and a lot of support when we lean into it. Yeah. Even this podcast, like you bring it, I think your podcast, examples of podcasts like yours, even I encourage therapists to even listen to all of those and find the therapist or the people you're interviewing who feel like, yes, they're my people. They're on my level. Send mm-hmm. them an email, reach out, connect, find out who they're connected to and actually seek this kind of community. Yeah. Cause this community totally exists. I know we both run different programs. We both run different communities, you know, that are focused on working through a lot of this imposter syndrome, this fear, this upward mobility. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. That's right. Mm, I love it. Tiffany, you want to take us back to the story you were just telling us a little while ago about your therapist? 
Yeah. So when we're thinking about money and the way it impacts our clinical work, you know, a lot of therapists, a lot of us think, oh, you know, I have money stuff, but it's not actually, but I'm a really great therapist. It doesn't actually impact my work. You could be a skilled therapist and I will say hands down, no doubt, if you're avoiding money stuff or not in financial integrity, that is coming into your clinical work. So when I was talking about earlier, my experience of being a client on a sliding scale and my feelings of needing to be grateful or lucky for what I have my experience of wanting to be a good client or be good because I was getting this, you know, the sliding scale. So I better appreciate it. Interesting thing happened where I had access to my partner's job, health insurance. And it was a new thing for me. I often have not had health insurance. And so suddenly I was able to use my out of network coverage to cover a large portion of the fee so that I could pay this therapist his full fee. And I have to tell you, Rebecca, that had a huge impact on what happened in the treatment. I suddenly felt bolder. I didn't feel the need to be as pleasing. I felt like, you know, I'm here to get help with these particular things. Let me bring my whole self in. When you started paying more. When I started paying more. And that includes my aggression, which I linked to my power. You know, what does it mean to be a own one space in the world? What does it mean to be direct in ways that aren't always pleasing or ladylike? And the treatment fell apart with that. There's two sides of every therapy situation, of course. But I think me actually bringing my full self, not being as pleasing, he had a hard time with that, actually. And we so that really illustrates a power differential there. Absolutely. When there was that sliding scale, there was power over. Yeah. And when you removed that power dynamic, when you started paying the full fee, therapeutically, things shifted. Absolutely, they shifted. And I think it was a hard lesson for me. It was really a hard thing to go through with him. You know, I had a story like if I bring my full self, it's going to be too much for people. And to have that play out in therapy was hard, but it also helped me think, okay, I can bring myself forward in the world. And in so doing, I can help other people, women, people of color, bring themselves forward in the world boldly and own their power. And that's actually had a big impact on my work with Hey Tiffany, my work with my clients, helping them to step boldly into the world. Because this is you. You step boldly. You own your power. Yes. You are there. And I think I really appreciate you bringing up this. I had a fear that I was too much stuff because I think so many of us have these kinds of fears. And I remember when we talked uh, many episodes back to Annie Schusler, she was Mm. talking about you know, honing in on that stuff, using it as it's your superpower, right? So how do you make your too muchness for one person into your power in another place? I love Annie. I love what she does. I love that superpower idea. And it also is that shift from, you know, you're too much, keep it down, you know, keep quiet to using that to step out into the world and actually make a huge impact. Yeah, because it's ginormous. It's about taking responsibility and like being you, yeah. Just showing up as you, whatever that means, you know, getting past the guilt and the shame of it all. And it also makes me think, so there's one thing that comes up around when we think about shame, especially around charging fees. One of the things that comes up is this idea of what if somebody doesn't want to pay my full fee? You know, we have those fears all the time. What if someone leaves or what if nobody comes? In that might be a message about what we're offering. If nobody's paying for our full fee, maybe we have some things to learn. And so I think also part of being bold is also being boldly 
open to real feedback about our growth areas and being willing to actually take a hard look and to elicit clear feedback about ways in which we can grow and change and ways in which we might actually be getting in our own way or impeding the growth of the people we're actually there to serve. I love that. One of the best pieces of business advice I ever got in regards to setting fees was that the fees should be whatever people are willing to pay. (laughs) Right. So like if I put my fee at like $500 a session and nobody's willing to book it, (laughs) it's not right. Or I'll say two things. Either it's not right. This is interesting. This is really, I have to think about this. Either it's not right or you better bust your behind to understand what person or what market would pay that $500, how and who you need to be and how you need to show up and what kind of value you need to provide in order to earn that $500. Totally. I mean, you have to get really, really clear on your message. Yeah. So like Esther Perel, who I love, she's doing all of this stuff around sex and relationships. She infidelity, has infidelity. Yeah. Yes, infidelity. I just got her book, The State of Affairs, which is great. I'm about six chapters in. Are you in? Oh, that's fantastic, right? Oh my gosh, I love it. I've been waiting. I've been waiting for this book to come out. Oh my God. I opened it up like the day it dropped. I was yes. so excited. So let's say someone like her. She is an example. I don't know what she actually charges for her sessions, but I bet she could get easily people who would pay her $500. Oh, no. She charged more than that, but she doesn't (gasps) offer sessions anymore. Holy smokes. Okay. All right. Well, we were talking about someone like Esther. You know, I think when you niche yourself in really well, like Esther Perel has done, it opens up a whole new world for you in regards to what the possibilities are. That's right. And not every therapist by any means wants to do that thing or go that way. There is something around being clear about how much money you need or want to have the lifestyle you need in order to do your best work. And that might require learning new things or leveling up in certain ways or learning new skills. It is easier to find people who can pay you $30 per session than it is to find people who can pay you $200 per session. It requires a different skill set. I also think, though, when we're talking about money, can we also talk about energy? Ooh, let's get into that. Okay, because I think there's an energetic exchange that's happening underneath money exchanges. And when people are giving us $30 a session versus when they're giving us $200 a session and the energy that we're putting into the work, Uh, right? Like there's something that comes forth from that. And I personally have found that the deeper I have slid for clients, the more energy they have asked of me in different wow. ways. Whereas, and, and the more of them I've needed to see at the same time. So the energy output for me has been different than when I'm seeing a smaller number of clients at a higher rate. My energy is different and I'm able to be more present with them in a different capacity. I absolutely, you know, what you're making me think about is, you know, I'll hear from therapists who come from an agency job, they go into private practice, but then their fees are low, so they have to see so many people to be able to keep up. I've heard of therapists you know, over 30 people a week in their practices. And I'm thinking, oh man, recreating this system of trauma for the people who have access to, you know, people can't afford high fees if they're coming to you in private practice and then you're seeing 30 or 40 people, they're actually getting the same kind of treatment that they might get at an agency job. It's better than nothing, but how much better would it be if actually therapists who set fees high enough that they could maybe see 10 or 15 or even 20 hours a week, but they could, if they wanted, take some sliding scale 
feed people, they could actually give that person so much more of this energy you're talking about, so much more of their time, and give that person a different kind of experience about what it means to explore their own mind, their own relationships, their own experience. Totally. And that same therapist who's now seeing less clients per week has more energy to put into giving back in other ways. Absolutely. I had a supervisor. Talks, they can write more. Like there's other ways they can do a podcast. That's right. (laughs) I had a supervisor who said to me, you don't have to give back in your private practice. There are other ways to give back. And that was the first time. And now I say that to people. It was the first time I was like, oh yeah. He said, you know, your business is not necessarily the way you are meant to give back. And in fact, no other profession requires you to give back via your basic stream of income. Yes. Yes. People listen to that. That's important right there. There are so many ways to have a giving heart and to show up in the world and be of service. And it doesn't have to be sacrificing your livelihood livelihood. That's exactly right. You don't have to sacrifice your livelihood. And I might even say that it is problematic when you use your livelihood as a way to give back. So a lot of conversation around this in healing communities also. I know Andrew Harvey, I think his name is, he's a spiritual teacher. And he talks a lot about how healers in general outside of therapists have trouble with money for similar reasons. Mm right? There's this mix up, the spiritual mix up between Mm -hmm. livelihood and money and energy. Yeah, I have seen that all over the place. And I think that's right on. And I think it's because we can't all be like Mother Teresa and the Dalai Lama, even though we might aspire to be. Yeah, it takes a certain kind of up leveling or evolution to be that. In truth, I don't know the reality of Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama situation. But I imagine like you're saying, they're not living in San Francisco or New York City <laughs> with a, you know, a $3,000 rent. Talk about support, right? Yeah. Like their situations are taken care of in different ways. Absolutely. And there's Absolutely. certainly a community of people around them who believe in them and support them and take yes. care of them. Yes. There's things that, that they correct. don't have to worry about. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. They have difficult. I think it's when we start comparing or I don't have it as bad as that person or I see that person giving back. I should too. That's when it becomes problematic when we start act- comparing our specific individual situations to the people around us. Oh, yes. Okay. So there's two more things I want to hit on before we wrap up today. One of them is around this comparison stuff because, you know, one of the things that irks me more than anything else is when people start sharing their money goals in places or talking about how much they're earning because I feel like that's such a personal thing. And as much as I want to be proud of you and for you, sometimes it feels like it's coming across in a way that's making other people feel like they're not enough. It's interesting. So this is something they're going to give away a little secret. This is actually part of my program where therapists have to go post their income goal. And part of the reason for that is so that they actually were so ashamed of it and so afraid that, oh, what kind of response or what kind of reaction we're going to get, that part of what that lesson is, is learning how to put it out there, come what may, no matter what kind of reaction you get, survive it, and then realize it actually has nothing to do with the people around you. But to get over that hump of sharing or being open about that, that's the hope of that exercise. It's so funny that it's bringing up this feeling within me. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think people then envy or compare or all. And actually, it's nothing, anything anyone else is doing actually has nothing to do with us. It's about them. Well, and that's the thing is when I've seen the posts, I've just noticed within me, like I haven't really 
engaged in them, but I've noticed and checked into myself whenever I've seen these types of posts, whenever I see them and it, you know, going back years, I'm always kind of like, "Uh uh-huh, why do I need that? You know, like it's just a, and so maybe that's just it. I just don't check in so much with them, but I notice them and I, I don't know. I love it. It's very exciting because I think about if someone posts my mom's birthday is today or, you know, nobody needs to post anything about anything particular feeling around that's really important something to really pay attention to why is that specific thing people post the thing that irks you huh I'm not sure I'm gonna well maybe we could dive more into this together (laughs) off air (laughs) (laughs) why is it the thing that irks me I think it's because it drums up comparison stuff Uh uh-huh uh-huh you know that's a place that I'm really alert to and it's not a place I really let myself dive into very often because it doesn't serve me well. You know, I love that you don't dive into it. I love that you're able to step back from the comparison thing. I'll say for me personally, as I've put myself out there more, as I've taken certain risks that are actually very scary to me, but I'm like, I got to do it. I've had friends around me who say, I'm super envious of you. It makes me feel bad to see you succeed because then it makes me reflect on the ways I'm not succeeding. And so there's also something about having to deal with the envy of other people or the fear that, oh, no, if I do well, am I going to make them feel bad? That's all stuff that comes up around money. And that's all stuff we have to lean into in order to get to the next level or to really show up in our practices or in our personal lives. We have to be willing to tolerate other people's feelings coming towards us. Totally. And we also have to know how to navigate our own feelings. Exactly. A hundred percent. Yes. You know, because I think the thing is that I'm noticing like, these are the places where I feel triggered and Ah. I have to do some self-censoring. Yeah. So that I don't go into a competitive place so that I can stay the course of what my goals are for me. Yeah. You know, so that I can stay in my integrated space yeah. and be fully me, those conversations are the ones that pull me out of this space and they are the ones that I need to filter. Yeah, I think that that is very insightful. You're very aware. If there are things or people or ideas that lead you to feel bad or, oh no, I'm not doing enough, absolutely filter those out. Don't engage. Understand, oh, I'm going to stay in my own lane. I'm going to play my own game because there's no other person in this game than me. Right. So, okay, here's my last question for you, and then I'll let you go. Talk to us a little bit about you in here and how this whole leaning into making bank and this program, but more so this focus in your work has shifted you. Oh. How has noticing all of these dynamics, having all these conversations around money up-leveled you in your life, and what kind of spiritual growth even has come out of that? That is a great question. I'll say, of course, this is something I'm interested in because it's been a struggle of mine, right? So, you know, in these conversations, in these explorations, I'm also continually working on and trying to understand these things for myself. For me personally, you know, my dad grew up, I found out when I was about, I think I was 18 or 19 and we were watching 2020 back in the day. And they said, oh, and here in the worst projects in America. And my dad said, oh, that's my neighborhood. That's where I grew up. And I was shocked. What? Because these were not things that he had talked to us about. You know, he kind of told funny stories about his upbringing. He didn't tell me about growing up in the worst projects in America where there was 
poverty and violence, all of this shaping his experience as a black man in America. And then I have this mom who grew up, she moved to a farm when she was 10, a one-room schoolhouse, super conservative, super religious. And so both of my parents had all kinds of stories around money. What does it mean to have it? What does it mean to be without it? And so all of these things have been in me as I've grown and changed. And so I have to say one of the huge impacts leaning into this money stuff has had on me is it's helped me start noticing all the scripts I have around money, all the fears I have around money. Money is a it's a concrete thing to look at, but it's really not about the money at all. It's actually about all these things that you and I have been talking about, projections, anxiety, envy, worth, am I enough, am I not enough? And so I use the concrete number because that's something clear to look at, but what it's actually a measure of for me personally is my own growth around who I am as a person, what does it mean to move up, who am I leaving behind, am I leaving people behind by growing up? And also, what can I do personally for people like my dad, people like my mom, what can I do to shift? And we're going to get huge here, but this whole system of social justice that's messed up in our society, this is a small way that I can make an impact. And if I can make an impact here, I can actually, in the long run, you know, one of my goals is I want to be able to pay for at least one, but hopefully ongoing, a foster kid to go through college. Like these are the kinds of goals I have, but I can't do that unless I can do it for myself first. I love this. And I love how you just really highlighted and demonstrated the different ways we can give back Yeah, when our own livelihood is kind of set aside and taken care of. And I'll say this too, I've also been able to work now five death penalty cases as a mitigation expert. In so doing, gotten five men either off death row or from going to death row. And I can do that because I'm taken care of in my practice. That gives me more room to do this life-changing work and life-saving work over here on the other side. So the social justice work. Absolutely. The social justice work. I mean, not just like, you know, righting wrongs, but like making a difference in an individual's life. Not maybe the whole society, but an individual. Right. I think it's easy. And this is one of the places I used to get stuck is, who am I to do anything when all these other people are suffering and the guilt or the pain of, you know, another shooting that I'll see, another police shooting. You know, these things can be literally crushing. Well, not literally, but devastating, absolutely devastating. And it is a, if I can figure out how to keep taking action and keep moving forward in the face of seeing these things, then I know that I can make a difference. And so that is the thing that drives me every day to get up and do this work. Oh, Tiffany, I so appreciate this conversation and I would love to have you back on the show to talk more about this drive to do the work. I would love to. We have to do it for something bigger than ourselves. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to do it. I am totally in agreement. And I want to go into that conversation with you next time. Excellent. Let's leave that as a teaser for our guests. Perfect. (laughs) So where can our listeners find you? People can find me at www.heytiffany.com. That's my website for therapists and private practice. Thank you so much. So enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. I very much enjoyed being here too. You do let people go deep. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for going deep with me. Oh, did you love today's episode as much as I did? I hope so, and I would love to hear your feedback over at practiceofbeingseen.com slash feedback. I'd also love to invite you to check out my last bonus episode about the Practice of Being Seen mentorship program, and perhaps come on over and join us there. 
The doors officially open for the Connectfulness Method Mentorship Program on November 27, 2017, and I won't be taking any new registrations after that. I'm still taking registrations now, and I'd love to talk to you and see if this program is the right fit for you. You can go ahead and send me an email at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com, and we'll set up a time to chat. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Farris, Jr. and Sr., produced by Kidneystone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show, and will join us next week for another episode of The Popscast, brought to you by Connectfulness. Connectfulness.